Chapter Five of Harrington by Maria Edgeworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jenny Bradshaw. Chapter Five. People like myself of lively imagination may have often felt that change of place suddenly extinguishes or gives a new direction to the ardour of their enthusiasm. Such persons may therefore naturally suspect that as my steps retired from Cain's smooth margin my enthusiasm for my learned rabbi might gradually fade away and that on my arrival in london i should forget my desire to become acquainted with the accomplished spanish jew but it must be observed that with my mother's warmth of imagination i also had i will not say i inherited some of my father's intensity of will some of that firmness of adhesion to a preconceived notion or purpose which in a good cause is called resolution in a bad cause obstinacy and which is either a curse or a blessing to the possessor according to the degree or habit of exercising the reasoning faculty with which he may be endowed on my arrival in london a variety of petty unforeseen obstacles occurred to prevent my accomplishing my visit to the spanish jew new and never-ending demands upon my time arose both in and out of my own family so that there seemed a necessity for my spending every hour of the day and night in a manner wholly independent of my will there seemed to be some fatality that set at naught all my previous plans and calculations every morning for a week after my arrival i regularly put my letter of introduction to mr montenero into my pocket resolving that i would that day find him out and pay my visit but after walking all the morning to bear and to forbear various engagements to execute promised commissions and to fulfil innumerable duties i regularly came home as i went out with my letter in my pocket and with the sad conviction that it was utterly impossible to deliver it that day these obstacles and this contrariety of external circumstances instead of bending my will or making me give up my intention fixed it more firmly in my mind and strengthened my determination nor was i the least shaken from the settled purpose of my soul by the perversity with which every one in our house opposed or condemned that purpose one morning when i had my letter and my hat in my hand i met my father who after looking at the direction of the letter and hearing that i was going on a visit to a spanish jew asked what business upon earth i could have with a jew cursed the whole race rejoiced that he had five-and-twenty years ago voted against their naturalization in england and ended as he began by wondering what in the name of heaven could make me scrape acquaintance with such fellows when in reply i mentioned my friend mr israel lyons and the high character he had drawn of mr montenero my father laughed saying that he would answer for it my friend israel was not an israelite without guile for that was a description of israelite he had never yet seen and he had seen a confounded deal of the world he decided that my accomplished spanish jew would prove an adventurer and he advised me a young man heir to a good english fortune to keep out of his foreign clutches in short he stuck to the advice he gave me and only wished i would stick to the promise i gave him when i was ten years old to have no dealings with the jews it was in vain that i endeavoured to give my explanation of the word dealings my father's temper naturally positive had i observed become as he advanced in years much more dogmatic and intolerant i avoided contradicting his assertions but i determined to pursue my own course in a matter where there could be nothing really wrong or improper that morning however i must i perceived as in duty bound sacrifice to my father 
he took me under the arm and carried me away to introduce me to some commonplace member of parliament who as he assured me was a much fitter and more profitable acquaintance for me than any member of the synagogue could possibly be the next morning when firm to my purpose i was sallying forth my mother with a face of tender expostulation and alarm stopped me and entreated me to listen to her my mother whose health had always been delicate had within these last three years fallen into what is called a very nervous state and this with her natural timidity and sensibility inclined her now to a variety of superstitious feelings to a belief in presentiments and presages omens and dreams added to her original belief in sympathies and antipathies some of these her peculiarities of opinion and feeling had perhaps at first only been assumed or yielded to in her season of youth and beauty to interest her admirers and to distinguish herself in society but as age advanced they had been confirmed by habit and weakness so that what in the beginning might have been affectation was in the end reality she was alarmed she said by the series of strange coincidences which from my earliest childhood had occurred seeming to connect my fate in some extraordinary manner with these jews she recalled all the circumstances of my illness when i was a child she confessed that she had retained a sort of antipathy to the idea of a jew a weakness it might be but she had had dreams and presentiments and my fortune had been told her while i was at cambridge and some evil she had been assured hung over me within the five ensuing years some evil connected with a jew in short she did not absolutely believe in such prophecies but still it was extraordinary that the first thing my mind should be intent upon in coming to town should be a spanish jew and she earnestly wished that i would avoid rather than seek the connection knowing my mother's turn for the romantic i had anticipated her delight at the idea of making acquaintance with a noble-minded travelled spaniard but unluckily her imagination had galloped off in a contrary direction to mine and now my only chance was to make her hear reason and a very bad chance i knew this to be i endeavoured to combat her presentiment and to explain whatever appeared extraordinary in my love and hatred of the jews by recalling the slight and natural circumstances at school and the university which had changed my early prejudice and i laboured to show that no natural antipathy could have existed since it had been completely conquered by humanity and reason so that now i had formed what might rather appear a natural sympathy with the race of israel i laboured these points in vain when i urged the literary advantages i had reaped from my friendship with mr israel lyons she besought me not to talk of friendship with persons of that sort i had now awakened another train of associations all unfavourable to my views my mother wondered for both she and my father were great wonderers as are all whether high or low who have lived only with one set of people my mother wondered that instead of seeking acquaintance in the city with old jews and persons of whom nobody had ever heard i could not find companions of my own age and rank in life for instance my schoolfellow and friend lord mowbray who was now in town just returned from abroad a fine young officer much admired here by the ladies i can assure you harrington added my mother this as i had opportunity of seeing was perfectly true for nearly five years had made a great apparent change in mowbray for the better his manners were formed his air that of a man of fashion a military man of fashion he had served a campaign abroad had been at the siege of gibraltar had much to say and could say it well we all know what astonishing metamorphoses are sometimes wrought even on the most hopeless subjects by seeing something of the world by serving a campaign or two 
how many a light empty shell of a young man comes home full if not of sense at least of something bearing the semblance of sense how many a heavy lout a dull son of the earth returns enlivened into a conversable being who can tell at least of what it has seen heard and felt if not understood and who for years perhaps for ever afterwards by the help of telling of other countries may pass in his own for a man of solid judgment such being the advantages to be derived by these means even in the most desperate cases we may imagine the great improvement produced in a young man of lord mowbray's abilities and with his ambition both to please and to shine in youth and by youth improvement in appearance and manner is easily mistaken for improvement in mind and principle all that i had disliked in the schoolboy the tyrannical disposition the cruel temper the insolent tone had disappeared and in their place i saw the deportment which distinguished a gentleman whatever remained of party spirit so different from the wrangling overbearing mischievous party spirit of the boy was in the man and the officer so happily blended with love of the service and with l'esprit de corps that it seemed to add a fresh grace animation and frankness to his manner the evil spirit of persecution was dislodged from his soul or laid asleep within him and in its place appeared the conciliating spirit of politeness he showed a desire to cultivate my friendship which still more prepossessed me in his favour mowbray happened to call upon me soon after the conversation i had with my mother about the spanish jew i had not been dissuaded from my purpose by her representations but i had determined to pay my visit without saying anything more about the matter and to form my own judgment of the man a new difficulty however occurred my letter of introduction had disappeared i searched my pockets my portfolios my letter-case every conceivable place but it was not to be found mowbray obligingly assisted me in this search but after emptying half a dozen times over portfolios pockets and desks i was ashamed to give him more trouble and i gave up the letter as lost when mowbray heard that this letter about which i was so anxious was an introduction to a jewish gentleman he could not forbear rallying me a little but in a very agreeable tone upon the constancy of my israelitish taste and the perfect continuance of my identity i left you harrington and i find you after four years absence intent upon a jew boy and man you are one and the same and in your case tis well that the boy and man should an individual make but for my part i am glad to change my identity like all other mortals once in seven years and i hope you think i have changed for the better it was impossible to think otherwise especially at that moment in a frank open-hearted manner he talked of his former tyrannical nature and blamed himself for our schoolboy quarrel i was charmed with him and the more so when he entered so warmly or so politely into my present distress and sympathised with my madness at the moment he suggested all that was possible to be done to supply the loss of the letter could not i get another in its stead the same friend who gave me one letter of introduction could write another no mr israel lyons had left cambridge and i knew not where to direct to him could not i present myself to mr montenero without a letter that might be rather an awkward proceeding but i was not to be stopped by any nice observances now that i had set my mind upon the matter unluckily however i could by no means recollect the exact address of mr montenero i was puzzled among half a dozen different streets and numbers mowbray offered to walk with me and we went to each of these streets and to all the variety of numbers i suggested but in vain no mr montenero was to be found at last tired and disappointed as i was returning home mowbray said he thought he could console me for the loss of my chance of seeing my spanish jew 
by introducing me to the most celebrated Jew that ever appeared in England. Then turning into a street near one of the playhouses, he knocked at the door of a house where Macklin the actor lodged. Lord Mowbray was well acquainted with him, and I was delighted to have an opportunity of seeing this celebrated man. He was at this time past the meridian of ordinary life, but he was in the zenith of his extraordinary course, and in the full splendour and vigour of his powers. "'Here,' said Mowbray, presenting me to Macklin, "'is a young gentleman, who is ambitious of being acquainted with the most celebrated Jew that ever appeared in England. Allow me to introduce him to the real, original Jew of Venice.' This is the Jew that Shakespeare drew. Whose lines are those, Harrington, do you know? Yours, I suppose. Mine? You do me much honour. No, they are Mr. Pope's. Then you don't know the anecdote. Mr. Pope, in the decline of life, was persuaded by Bolingbroke to go once more to the playhouse to see Mr. Macklin in the character of Shylock. According to the custom of the time, Pope was seated among the critics in the pit. He was so much struck and transported with admiration that in the middle of the play he started up and repeated that distich. Now, was not I right when I told you, Harrington, that I would introduce you to the most celebrated Jew in all England, in all Christendom, in the whole civilised world? No one better than Mowbray knew the tone of enthusiastic theatric admiration in which the heroes of the stage like, or are supposed to like, to be addressed. Macklin, who was not easy to please, was pleased. The lines, or as Quinn insisted upon their being called, the cordage of his face relaxed. He raised, turned, and settled his wig in sign of satisfaction, then with a complacent smile gave me a little nod, and suffered Lord Mowbray to draw him out by degrees into a repetition of the history of his first attempt to play the character of Shylock. A play altered from Shakespeare's and called The Jew of Venice had been for some time in vogue. In this play the Jew had been represented by the actors of the part, as a ludicrous and contemptible, rather than a detestable character. And when Macklin, recurring to Shakespeare's original Shylock, proposed in The Revived Merchant of Venice to play the part in a serious style, he was scoffed at by the whole company of his brother actors, and it was with the utmost difficulty he could screw the manager's courage to the sticking-place, and prevail upon him to hazard the attempt. Take the account in Macklin's own words, footnote, Vida Macklin's Life, when the long-expected night at last arrived, the house was crowded from top to bottom, with the first company in town. The two front rows of the pit, as usual, were full of critics. "'I eyed them,' said Macklin, "'I eyed them, sir, through the slit in the curtain, and was glad to see them there, as I wished, in such a cause, to be tried by a special jury. When I made my appearance in the green room, dressed for the part, with my red hat on my head, my peaked beard, my loose black gown, and with a confidence which I had never before assumed, the performers all stared at one another, and evidently with a stare of disappointment. Well, sir, hitherto all was right, till the last bell rung. Then, I confess, my heart began to beat a little. However, I mustered up all the courage I could, and recommending my cause to Providence, threw myself boldly on the stage, and was received by one of the loudest thunders of applause I ever before experienced. The opening scenes being rather tame and level, I could not expect much applause, but I found myself listened to. I could hear distinctly in the pit the words, "'Very well, very well indeed, this man seems to know what he is about.' These encomiums warned me, but did not overset me. I knew where I should have the pull, which was in the third act, and accordingly at this period I threw out all my fire, and as the contrasted passions of joy for the merchant's losses and grief for the elopement of Jessica open a fine field for an actor's powers, I had the good fortune to please beyond my most sanguine expectations.' 
The whole house was in an uproar of applause, and I was obliged to pause between the speeches to give it vent so as to be heard. The trial scene wound up the fullness of my reputation. Here I was well listened to, and here I made such a silent yet forcible impression on my audience, that I retired from this great attempt most perfectly satisfied. On my return to the green room, after the play was over, it was crowded with nobility and critics, who all complimented me in the warmest and most unbounded manner, and the situation I felt myself in, I must confess, was one of the most flattering and intoxicating of my whole life. No money, no title, could purchase what I felt. By God, sir, though I was not worth fifty pounds in the world at that time, yet let me tell you, I was Charles the Great for that night." The emphasis and enthusiasm with which Macklin spoke pleased me. Enthusiastic people are always well pleased with enthusiasm. My curiosity, too, was strongly excited to see him play Shylock. I returned home, full of the Jew of Venice, but nevertheless not forgetting my Spanish Jew. At last my mother could no longer bear to see me perplex and vex myself in my fruitless search for the letter, and confessed that while we were talking the preceding day— finding that no arguments or persuasions of hers had had any effect she had determined on what she called a pious fraud so while i was in the room before my face while i was walking up and down holding forth in praise of my jewish friend whom i did know and my jewish friend whom i did not know she had taken up mr israel lyon's letter of introduction to mr montenero and had thrown it into the fire i was very much provoked but to my mother and a mother who was so fond of me what could i say after all i confess there was a good deal of fancy in the case on my side as well as on hers i endeavoured to forget my disappointment my imagination turned again to shylock and macklin and to please me my mother promised to make a large party to go with me to see the merchant of venice the next night that macklin should act but unfortunately macklin had just now quarrelled with the manager until this could be made up there was no chance of his condescending to perform meantime my mother having as she thought fairly got rid of the jews and mowbray having as he said cured me of my present fit of jewish insanity desired to introduce me to his mother and sister they had now just come to town from the priory brantefield priory an ancient family seat where much to her daughter's discomfiture lady de brantefield usually resided eight months of the year because there she felt her dignity more safe from contact and herself of more indisputable and unrivalled consequence than in the midst of the jostling pretensions and modern innovations of the metropolis. At the Priory everything attested, recorded, and flattered her pride of ancient and illustrious descent. In my childhood I had once been with my mother at the Priory, and I still retained a lively recollection of the antique wonders of the place. Foremost in my memory came an old picture called Sir Jocelyn going to the Holy Land, where Sir Jocelyn de Mowbray stood in complete armour, pointing to a horrid figure of a prostrate Jew, on whose naked back an executioner, with uplifted whip, was prepared to inflict stripes for some shocking crime. This picture had been painted in times when the proportions of the human figure were little attended to, and where foreshortening was not at all understood. This added to the horrible effect, for the executioner's arm and scourge were of tremendous size, Sir Jocelyn stood miraculously tall, and the Jew— crouching supplicating sprawling was the most distorted squalid figure eyes ever beheld or imagination could conceive after having once beheld it i could never bear to look upon it again nor did i ever afterwards enter the tapestry chamber but there were some other of the antique rooms in which i delighted and diverse pieces of old furniture which i reverenced there was an ancient bed with scalloped tester and tarnished quilt in which queen elizabeth had slept 
and a huge embroidered pincushion done by no hands as you may guess but those of the unfortunate mary queen of scots who during her captivity certainly worked harder than ever queen worked before or since then there was an old worm-eaten chair in which john of gaunt had sat and I remember that while Lady de Brantefield expressed her just indignation against the worms for having dared to attack this precious relic, I, kneeling to the chair, admired the curious fretwork, the dusty honeycombs, which these invisible little workmen had excavated. But John of Gaunt's chair was nothing to King John's table. There was a little black oak table, too, with broken legs, which was invaluable, for as Lady de Brantefield confidently affirmed, King John of France and the Black Prince had sat and supped at it, I marvelled much in silence, for I had been sharply reproved for some observation I had unwittingly made on the littleness and crookedness of a dark corner-chimneyed nook shown us for the banqueting-room, and I had fallen into complete disgrace for having called the winding staircases leading to the turret-chambers back stairs. Of Lady de Brantefield, the touch-me-not mistress of the mansion, I had retained a sublime but not a beautiful idea. I now felt a desire to see her again, to verify my old notion. Of Lady Anne Mowbray, who at the time I had been at the Priory was a little child, some years younger than myself, I could recollect nothing, except that she wore a pink sash of which she was very vain, and that she had been ushered into the drawing-room after dinner by Mrs. Fowler, at the sight of whom my inmost soul had recoiled. I remember indeed pitying her little ladyship for being under such dominion, and longing to ask her whether Fowler had told her the story of Simon the Jew but I could never commune with Lady Anne, for either she was up in the nursery, or Fowler was at her back in the drawing-room, or little Lady Anne was sitting upright on her stool at her mother's feet, whom I did not care to approach, and in whose presence I seldom ventured to speak. Consequently my curiosity on this point had, from that hour, slumbered within me, but it now wakened upon my mother's proposing to present me to Lady Anne, and the pleasure of asking and the hope of obtaining an answer to my long-meditated question was the chief gratification I promised myself from the renewal of our acquaintance with her ladyship. End of chapter 5 Recording by Jenny Bradshaw